The information provided on this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available are for general informational purposes only. Welcome to Rights Here, Rights Now, the podcast about disability, advocacy, and activism. I'm your advocate host, Virginia Ferris. And I'm your advocate host, Ren Fazuski. Every two weeks, we dig into relevant issues, current events, and avenues for self-advocacy. Because someone has to. And it might as well be us. This podcast is produced by the Disability Law Center of Virginia, the Commonwealth's Protection and Advocacy Agency for Disability Rights. Find out more at dlcv.org. Okay, Ren, we have a... I'm not going to say a fun one for you today, but an important one. It is an important one. It's kind of a double feature, too, in terms of having two guests. Yes, um, we have the lovely Becca Herbig and Nicole DeRose um, from DLCV's institutions team in to talk about COVID-19 and um, institutions. So um, state psychiatric hospitals, jails. and just other congregate care environments where we're, where we're really seeing um, a lot of issues with COVID-19. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of complicated, too, in terms of, like, what people are responding. So I'm really looking forward to getting clarification. But before we jump in, let's check out Disability in the News. Disability service providers across the country are closing programs due to the coronavirus pandemic, and some may not reopen. In a survey of 191 disability organizations, 77% said that they have shut down or discontinued programs due to COVID, and 16% indicated that they are not going to reopen. Most of these closures are day programs and employment services. Some providers have had to close due to increased costs related with personal protective equipment, COVID-19 testing, cleaning supplies and staff, and additional training. Many organizations have gotten some financial support state and federal assistance, but that assistance is not able to be ongoing. This greatly affects people with disabilities who are not able to go out in the community or to their places of work, which can lead to decreased emotional and physical health. Find out more at disabilitystoop.com. All right, welcome again to Nicole and Becca, first-timers on Rights Here, Rights Now. Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Good morning. (laughs) We're talking about some very important stuff today, and let's go ahead and just dive right in because I know it's a pretty pretty juicy topic, and a lot of people want to be in the know. So can we talk about state psychiatric hospitals and the COVID-19 pandemic about specifically how they're being reported. Are these, are the state facilities even required to report 
on the COVID cases? Good question. Yes, state psychiatric hospitals are required to report any presumptive positive or laboratory confirmed diagnosis of residents for COVID through what's called the CRIS system. This is because there was actually already a regulation in place before the pandemic that required the state hospitals to report, quote unquote, any serious injury or illness to the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services within 24 hours. In a March 16th memorandum from this month, the department explicitly defined COVID-19 as a reportable illness in the CRIS system. Is the CRIS system something that the public has access to? No, the public does not have access to the CRIS system. DLCV has been able to work out an information sharing uh, program with the department so that we do get some of this and we're able to investigate some of these things. But one thing that the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services has done is created a COVID-specific website on their page. And so about two or three times a week, they will actually create a chart and update for the public the number of cases currently in each of the state hospitals. Obviously, you know, we've been talking about safety precautions during the pandemic and how to keep people safe, how to keep people safe. I imagine that in these institutions, that's even more difficult. How are the state hospitals what are the state hospitals doing to keep their patients safe from COVID? So each of the state psychiatric hospitals has developed their own COVID response plan to ensure that residents and staff are as safe as possible. DLCB has reviewed these plans to ensure that they are consistent with best practice and spoken with administration if we found any concerns. As you may or may not know, Residents in the state hospitals often attend group meetings or classes throughout the day to keep them occupied and help them be prepared for reentry to the community. Some of the hospitals have responded by changing the typical class schedule or class sizes to ensure that residents can maintain as much social distancing as possible while also permitting a cleaning crew to come through in between meetings to disinfect. Other hospitals, however, have almost entirely gotten rid of resident activities that are off of the unit. We are concerned when there's no access to programming and activities. These things are key to each resident's recovery to make sure that they are engaged in their programming, in their recovery, and that they are prepared for their discharge back to the community. So with all that modification to the way that um, state facilities are doing groups, are there are there any facilities that you guys have seen struggle um, struggle with that, struggle with um, maintaining groups in the time of COVID? Yeah, Southeastern Virginia Training Center is one that uh, we've gotten some reports or some feedback on that programming is not happening to the degree that maybe it should be inside the homes. Um, the SCVTC, does report that they are doing programs different. Uh, normally, residents go to a main building where day support is held and they do activities in that building. Uh, with the you know, COVID going on, they have the day support staff basically dispatched, dispatched to the homes and providing the day support activities inside the homes. Um, the other dilemma with this as well is that this also limits residents 
you know, that are already not going in the community and not going anywhere else, essentially just staying in the homes all day. And that's what they're doing. So, you know, there are some concerns about the variety of activities, um, you know, getting residents still out in the community in, in safe ways, but making sure that, you know, they're still integrated in the community as they should be at a training center. You know, obviously there's a lot of changes going on and we're, we're really trying to keep up with how fast that's happening and how these facilities are responding. What is DLCV doing to monitor these institutions at this time while keeping everybody safe? So in March of this year, we made a decision that it was safer for both our clients and our staff for us to start to do monitoring remotely until it was safe to go back. About a month ago, we actually were able to safely get back to doing in-person monitoring visits at some of the facilities. Uh, We've very closely been monitoring the outbreaks that are happening at the facilities and making the determination about whether it's safe to monitor in person on a case-by-case basis. We have challenged the state hospitals, especially though, to create unique ways for us to interact with residents. And we've had our best success in developing these creative workarounds if we do it on a facility by facility basis as the technologies and the staff culture at each facility is completely different. Are there any um, facilities, you know, you mentioned that you were monitoring outbreaks remotely. Are there any facilities at the time of recording who are experiencing outbreaks? So we are aware of two facilities that currently have outbreaks. We had planned to recently go do an in-person monitoring visit at uh, Northern Virginia Mental Health Institute. And we've been closely monitoring. They had an outbreak earlier this year and they then had 50 days without any positive cases, which was really a great accomplishment and we were happy to see that. Then, unfortunately, right before we went to visit, we were advised by the administration that they had another outbreak. So they created both a quarantine unit and an isolation unit, and they are we're trying to monitor that outbreak currently remotely. In addition, Southern Virginia Mental Health Institute had only reported cases among staff, and last week we learned of cases among residents. And so Southern Virginia Mental Health Institute, we won't be doing an in-person visit soon, but we are going to be trying to monitor remotely as much as possible. Thankfully, we've got really great relationships with the administration at both of these facilities, and they keep us updated regularly. Yeah, I would add, um, not to break the fourth wall at all, but as um, the advocate who's currently covering Piedmont Geriatric Hospital, you know, we have also been monitoring the outbreak um, there. I think that at this point, because it's been going on for what feels like months, even though it's only been a couple of weeks, it's not the first one that comes to mind. Although uh, at the time of recording and hopefully for well after the time of recording, Piedmont is the only facility that we have seen casualties. Obviously, the state psychiatric facilities are major facilities that DLCV monitors. Uh, Besides the state hospitals, are there any other facilities that DLCV is monitoring during this up, you know, during this pandemic to track how they're reacting to these COVID-19 cases? 
Yeah, we are. I mean, we are looking at every facility and we're starting to look a little bit more, I think, at jails. With prisons, DOC has been pretty transparent um, as far as getting their data on their website of the positive cases reported for um, staff and inmates and the testing that's been completed and any inmates that have um, passed away from uh, coronavirus. Jails, however, don't have that same kind of uniformity. So it's very difficult to know what is happening in jails um, unless we have you know, a family member or somebody, maybe an attorney, someone who has a connection on the inside of jails, that's the only way we're really getting any kind of transparency or an understanding of what is going on in jails. Um, So recently we went to a jail and, you know, learned that the jails are using, and this is from the uh, inmates, that they're utilizing the inmates to clean out pods or units that were had a, another inmate on there that tested positive, and they're not really providing the inmates with appropriate uh, PPE. They might give them some gloves and you know a flimsy mask, but they're not also informing inmates of what they're doing before they're going in there, or, or what you know what's going on, why they're going in. So they're not getting that informed consent, and it's not really a question to the inmates of you know do you want to go clean a cell um, or a pod. Um, so inmates have been having some concerns about that. Like, you know, why aren't they using the external companies to come in and um, clean the pods that had someone who had tested positive on them? Do we know if that's something that is happening across um, the jails as a system, or is that something that uh, was limited to the facility that you guys visited? Right now it's limited to the facility that we visited. Um, But, you know, again, with jails, jails have no overarching um, department or accountability in, you know, Virginia, like prisons do, like Department of Corrections oversees all the prisons. And so it's, there's just a little more accountability and transparency with that. And there's, you know, only one person to kind of, or not one person, but one entity to go to with questions jails are all very individual. And so you don't have that one agency to go to, to ask questions. It really is having to go to each jail or, you know, to figure out what's going on. Um, And unless inmates or family members of inmates like call or let us know what's happening, we really don't know. We really can't be at every, you know, single jail um, interviewing inmates about this. So it's very difficult to figure out what is really going on in jails and get a clear idea and understanding of that. Is there anything our listeners can do to support folks in facilities at this time? We have a hotline where people can call us on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays to learn more information or make a complaint to us. And we're really relying on you all to assist us with our remote monitoring efforts. And you can do that because if you are aware, you know, of any concerns or anything going on at any type of residential location or even a work location or anywhere else, we've got a number of advocates and attorneys here at the Disability Law Center that would love to help you out. And so we rely on you all to assist us in our work to keep people with disabilities in Virginia safe. Thank you guys again so much for coming in and talking to us about COVID in the institutions. Um, We hope 
to have you guys back soon to talk about, um, I was going to say something a little bit happier, but it is institutions. So we, in that case, we just hope to have you guys back sometime to talk about something. Thank you for having us. Take care, everybody. And now, a DLCV highlight. Jasmine is a young lady with neurological disabilities who recently finished high school. She is a client in the Department for Aging and Rehabilitative Services, DICE. Due to the pandemic, her job development services came to a halt because she could not meet in person with her job coach. She and her mom contacted DLCD to see what could be done. Due to DLCD's advocacy at a meeting with Jasmine and her mom, as well as the DIAS staff, Jasmine's services with her job coach when put that into place virtually. It is worth noting that because her job hopes and services continued, DLCD recently learned that Jasmine got a full-time job. She is so excited about her job and DLCD's advocacy on her behalf to help make this happen. So thank you again, Becca and Nicole, for taking the time to talk to us. Um, and brief us on just the critical issue of what we can do for ourselves, our loved ones, anyone who might be um, having to face this COVID-19 pandemic while in an institution, which is a really scary place to be. Yeah, I mean, certainly we we do a lot of work in institutions, you know, year round. That's you know, part of our bread and butter, really. But obviously, right now, during the pandemic, it is really crucial. And any help we can get from listeners, you know, letting us know about things they've encountered would be really, really helpful. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Rights Here, Rights Now, brought to you by the Disability Law Center of Virginia. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a review and share it with your friends and your colleagues and anybody. Everyone. Everyone. Share it with everybody. If you need assistance or want more information about DLCV and what we do, you can also follow us on social media. We have a Twitter at Disability Law VA, and we also have a Facebook at Disability Law Center of Virginia. Follow us and share us with your friends. Until next time, I'm Virginia Ferris. And I'm Ren Fazuski. And this has been Rights Here, Rights Now. <laughs> <laughs>